delve into this a little bit further. I have an article here I'd like to read out to you. It's, a, it's an article that actually refers back in the, to the situation uh, 9-11 in 2001 uh, when uh, New York was attacked by terrorists and those two planes crashed into the Twin Towers and they came down. It's nearly 22 years ago. It doesn't seem that long. It seems quite incredible, really. And, uh, and Steve and I particularly felt curious that we should be on the same day today, but uh, we had our bags packed on that previous day and we were going over to the United States of America. I think we're going to be, do, solve the world's problem, weren't we, Steve? I think we're going over to convert the United States of America uh, on that particular day. And we were woken up in the morning to find out that no one was going to enter uh, America that day. The air, airports had been shut down and, of course, they were in lockdown. Uh, so we didn't quite finish that particular journey. But I'd like you to uh, just uh, listen to this particular uh, article. It says... One of the most commonest ways in which we hold a conversation with other people is by asking questions. Indeed, as we, have int we introduce to someone, we normally say, how do you do or how are you going? As we sometimes find conversation become a little bit more difficult, we ask how the family is and what the weather has been like and so on. These questions, of course, are conventional, trivial and of no importance except as a means of communicating one with another. However... Some questions are a matter of life and death. Thinking of what happened in that great city of New York on the 11th of September 2001, I am supposing hundreds, indeed thousands of men and women, many of them in their prime of life, who had taken the underground, the bus or their car to work, greeted their colleagues in the morning by asking them if they had a good weekend and what they were doing and how it all went. They may uh, check the New York Times to see how the stock exchange is going. More questions and comments would follow. There would be intentions to take the family to a restaurant for a meal in the evening after work or plans to go to Florida during the winter to get away from the cold. All these questions, I am sure, were being used among the workers as they sat at their desk preparing to use their telephones, their computers and every kind of wizardry which we associate with the most sophisticated business centre in the world. Then, as you know, something happened, something entirely unforeseen. Aeroplanes loaded with fuel struck the building. In that moment, all those other questions were forgotten. The stock exchange mattered nothing. Florida's holiday resort mattered nothing. Restaurants mattered nothing. What did matter was one thing only, how can we escape? How can we get from the 91st floor down to the ground level? If you and I had been there amongst these, our beloved colleagues and friends, our question would have been exactly the same. How can we escape? See, so you see, some questions are indeed a matter of life and death. And that gives us moments to reflect, no doubt. But that's what it's saying here, of course. How shall we escape? That ought to be, it's not, and in most cases hardly even considered, it ought to be the question that everybody on the planet asks because the judgment of God is against this planet. The wrath of God is against this planet. How shall we escape the wrath of God? How can we escape judgment day? Well, most don't even think about it, of course. But that's a question we ought to be uh, because God is not happy with a world that's full of sinners 
sinners by nature and sinners in practice. And we've heard bits of that, of course, in Steve's talk as well. And the Bible does make it very clear. I'll read to you Romans 1 verse 18, chapter 1 and verse 18 in the Amplified. And there are many scriptures like this. For God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness, in their sinfulness, repress and hinder the truth and make it inoperative. So God looks down and he sees all the way the world is operating, 8 billion plus people. And he, he hasn't been happy all the way through, of course, when people are disobedient and rebellious. And there have been occasions where he's poured out his wrath, as we know, and we'll mention a little bit of that in a moment. But it's building up. In Jude, verse 14 and 15, again from the Amplified, Behold, the Lord comes with his myriads of holy ones, ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the impious unholy ones of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the severe, abusive, jarring things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's building up, isn't it? There's 8 billion plus now, but there's been a lot more come and gone prior to that who have uh, stood against the things of God and made it very clear their position against God and godliness. In Second Peter it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And the message, of course, if, 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 if God did all of that, then we need to make sure we appreciate that judgment is knocking on the door very much so when you see the world situation. Let me describe from the Amplified Bible what the scene was in Noah's time. Now that's Noah. It's a restricted geographical location with a limited number of people in Noah's time. We don't believe in a worldwide flood. We believe in a localised flood, a localised judgment for that time at that place for those people. But What's it going to be like if, if God looked down and, and acted accordingly and, and uh, dealt, with, dealt with all of that back then? Listen to this. This is describing the time of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the land and that every imagination and intention of all human thinking was only evil continually. The land was depraved and putrid in God's sight and the land was filled with violence, desecration, infringement, outrage, assault and lust for power. And God looked upon the land and saw how degenerate, debased and vicious it was. This is Noah's time. It's been multiplied a lot now by the world scene that we, uh, we're part of. And saw how degenerate it was and, and corrupted their way upon the land and lost their true direction. God said to Noah, I intend to make an end of all of this. For through men the land is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy them and the land. Another more modern translation says, the world was rotten to the core. Wow. That's God's summation. This is God's word, don't forget. This is the description that God gave uh, the writer to make sure that we understand and appreciate. 
So judge, God's judgment had to come back then. He couldn't tolerate that any longer. And, and he's being long-suffering, not willing that any should perish now. But how long can he suffer the, the sinfulness and corruption, depravity of this world in every department, in every situation? The Lord must be horrified. But in all of these situations and in every situation, the Lord always provides a way of escape. He's always got an open door for us. There's always an opportunity to repent, even this world, even the corruption of this world. In Second Peter it said, God spared not the old world but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God dealt with and judged the ungodly, but he paved a way for those who had repentance in their heart and want to follow the Lord. And the word there for saved Noah, some translations have preserved Noah, protected Noah, rescued Noah, delivered Noah, or gave Noah a way of escape, provided a way of escape, as he always does. In that case, it was an ark. Build an ark, get on board, and you'll be safe. The opportunity for everybody else that was all around him to get on board the same ark, but they refused. So the Lord gives people an opportunity to repent. He provides a way for them to escape and they can avail themselves of it or they can refuse it. And sadly enough, apart from eight people, Noah and seven others of his family, they refused it. In Second Peter also says in the Amplified, later he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into heaps of ashes and blotted them off the face of the earth, making them an example for all the ungodly in the future to look back and fear. But, the very next verse, but at the same time, the Lord rescued Lot out of Sodom. So he still provided a way of escape. Two verses later in Second Peter, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. And other translations have to draw unto oneself, to rescue, to cause to escape, to provide a way of escape. The Lord knows how to provide a way of escape to the godly, to those who want to be in God's righteousness. So even though there's a judgment and even though the Bible speaks uh, horrifically of it, as it were, in many, many places, not nice at all, but the Lord says, I still want to give you an opportunity. His love is still there. His mercy is still there. His grace is still there. There is still opportunity to get it right with him. That's what... Uh, the opportunity is for, for the world if they'd avail themselves of it. Most won't. Only few will heed God's call, of course. In Galatians it says, I'll read from another translation, if we could be saved or rescued by his laws, then God would not have had to give us a different way to get out of the grip of sin. For the scriptures insist we are all his prisoners. We're all captive. The only way out is through faith in Jesus Christ. The way of escape is open to all who believe him. So the Lord has provided a, a way of escape for us. In Acts chapter 13 it says, So let us be clearly known and understood by you all, brethren, that through this man Jesus forgiveness and removal of sins is now proclaimed to you. It was proclaimed to us a little earlier in uh, Steve Berg's talk. But that's what it's about, the forgiveness of sins. We were sinners and we have to have a dramatic change take place. The Lord has to forgive us of our sins and give us the opportunity to walk on in his righteousness and be cleansed, as we've heard, uh, continually by the blood of Christ, the same provision made for us. 
And it says in verse 39, And through him, everyone who believes, who acknowledges Jesus as his saviour and devotes himself to him, not just a general acknowledgement, but is obedient to the word of God, obedient to Jesus Christ, obedient to what the example that Jesus Christ set us, then we'll be cleared and freed, it says, set free from every charge which is against you because of your sinful state. So we're set free. The door's open. We've escaped. We've got out now from uh, the, the penalty, from the wrath of God, from the judgment. So we're reading here, in, <laughs> get back to chapter 2 here, how shall we escape if, it goes on to say, we neglect so great salvation? So the Bible makes it clear and we know we've got a great salvation. We were reminded on the earlier talk that we need to think about that and ponder the greatness of that salvation. God has provided a way of escape, a great way of escape, because it's a great salvation. In the Amplified Bible, it says, how shall we escape appropriate retribution and judgment if we neglect and refuse to pay attention to such a great salvation that has now been offered to us? How can we escape? How can anybody escape? How is it possible to escape the judgment of God outside of the provision that God has made for us, the way of escape? Here it is that opens the prison doors. There are little interesting examples in the book of Acts of people in prison and how the Lord opened the doors for them. And uh, uh, maybe just little examples for us to recognise, well, we were locked up in prison in our sinful state and the Lord opened the doors for us and set us free. And there are numerous illustrations of that in the Bible. So the Bible's telling us here and reflecting on, and we should do also, reflect on the great salvation. Do we ponder that? from time to time, thinking about the greatness of what's taken place in our life. And we know that it's been confirmed in our life because we had our own day of Pentecost. We've talked about that recently, but I, mine's March the 2nd, 1969. You know the date you received the Holy Ghost and you know that was your day of Pentecost. That's the day you received the Holy Spirit exactly like the first church on the day of Pentecost, received the Spirit and spoke in tongues and you initiated baptised into the body of Christ on that day, your day, whatever it was, 20 years ago in the case of Cat, a long time ago in the case of me and others, but sometimes more recently. doesn't matter as long as you've established that day. And we can read about all of this. As you know, you read about it in Acts chapter 2, you read about it in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. Jesus Christ said you must be born again. You'll hear the voice thereof. It's all identified, Mark 16. No problems. The great salvation is clearly identified. In the Bible, how we're supposed to be saved, how, how we're supposed to escape. And this has been God's great plan from before the world began. In Second Timothy, he saved us, gave us the way of escape according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. So this is not an ad hoc arrangement. God knew exactly what he was doing before he even said the first words, let there be, way back in Genesis chapter 1. And that plan is unfolding from Genesis to Revelation. It doesn't finish in Revelation. There's a lot more to go on after that, the ages of ages to come. God's plan is all embracing. It is a great plan which is part of his great salvation. And mixed up in that plan is a great promise, a great promise for you and I to be brought into a wonderful relationship with the creator of the universe. What a promise that is. In the middle of that is 
the promise of the Holy Ghost to make it possible because it's the Holy Spirit that baptizes into that relationship. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the, the adoption into the household of God. So we've got a great promise being brought into that situation. But there are lots of great promises part of our salvation. There's great provision. The Lord wants to take care of us in our healing and our natural bodies and provision for day-to-day sustenance or whatever, jobs and husbands and wives and children, whatever. To make this great salvation, there was a great price that had to be paid, the blood of Jesus Christ. Can't get a greater price than that. We are purchased with the blood of Christ, the Son of God. Oh, hallelujah. Uh, we've also, I just jotted the, I, I, I preface each one by the word great, of course, because it's great salvation. We have great power. The power of the Holy Ghost coming upon you. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Sometimes we forget how much power has been entrusted to us. We've been endued with power from on high. Can't get any higher than that. The Lord has entrusted us with the Holy Ghost experience and all the things that go with that Christ in us, the hope of glory. Hallelujah. So we had uh, the power that created the universe and raised Christ from the dead. And, of course, there's enormously great potential in all of this, great potential for you and I to represent the Lord, whether it's at a wedding or somewhere else and, and preach the gospel and see, well, the potential would be possible to save 8.4 billion or whatever it is on the planet nowadays. That's the potential and beyond that, of course. Unfortunately, that potential is going to go unused in many ways because most people don't want to tap into the resources of the Lord. But it's there. It says in Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. Not that all men will avail themselves or any or women will either, but uh, it's available to us. It's also given us a great position. Right now, the Bible says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you, that right now we should be called the sons and daughters, the children of God. That's our position. We are now seated in heavenly places. You can't get a better position than that in Christ. That's our position. That's, a, that's part of our great salvation. All of these things are what the Bible's telling us about here. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. And on top of all of that, we have a great, glorious future. That doesn't match up, does it? Great future, great posterity, to put an extra P in there. So we've got a, all of those things go together to make up our great salvation, our great way of escape, and the only way of escape, the necessary way of escape. Now, the word neglect there say in our dictionaries is lack of attention and due care, to fail to attend to properly, to leave undone or to leave out or not to guard carefully. So the Bible's warning us, how shall we escape if we don't pay due attention to the things that we've so been graciously given by the Lord? Let's go back to verse 1 of that chapter 2. So we'll read it all in context now. Therefore we ought... It starts off with, the word ought, as we know in the Greek, means must. It means uh, of obvious necessity, of logical necessity. It's just, it's, 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 a, it's a must situation, not a possibility, not a maybe. We therefore must give the more earnest heed, closer attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, let them slip or drift away. You know, I've mentioned this before, but in the Greek quite often there's sort of a more illustrative sort of language that sometimes we don't always get uh, the fullness of. And uh, 
It says in the margin, trying to help us here, if you've got a margin, it says, run out as leaking vessels. So we've got to be careful lest it just slips away from us and runs out as a, a leaking vessel. But in the Greek, there's actually a sort of a, a, a seafaring term involved here. It actually sort of implies the, the thought about a ship being uh, uh, anchored to the tied to the jetty and maybe the the knot slipping and uh, and uh, and slowly but surely the the boat slips away from the jetty and keeps slipping away from the jetty and keeps slipping away from the jetty until eventually finds itself on the rocks and it's smashed because we didn't tie the knot tightly enough so this is what one modern translation says therefore we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we've been taught lest the ship of life drift past the harbour and be wrecked. So it's quite a vivid picture that the, perhaps the Greek is uh, painting for us here, that we've got to hang on tightly to make sure. That's part of it. Take heed. For if the word, in verse 2, spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So, and that's, how, that's our thought today. Eventually, down the line, from the day of Pentecost, we've got the message. We've received now the confirmation. We've had the words of Jesus Christ made alive in our life. He said, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and believers will speak in new tongues. And on our day of Pentecost, we as a believer and a responder to the word of the Lord received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. So it was confirmed to us, of course. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That's what he's done to us now. We've experienced that. We appreciate that. And the Bible's telling us, well, now, don't neglect that. Make sure you hang on to that. Make sure you appreciate that. Make sure you give thanks for that. Make sure you recognise how good the Lord has been to us. Let's go to Hebrews 12. Steve pro, uh, uh, preached a little bit from Hebrews 12, I think one or two verses. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, chapter 12 follows straight on from chapter 11, obviously, but there shouldn't be a demarcation really even. In chapter 11, we hear about all the people who've gone before us who've uh, done all their faithfulness to the things of the Lord and stood firm and held on to their promises despite trials and tribulations, despite oppositions and so on. It says there, of whom the world was not worthy, these people. Well, they're looking down upon us, as it were. They're not literally. No one goes to heaven yet. But uh, in, in a symbolic sort of way, the Bible's sort of wanting us to paint a picture that we're running a race in an auditorium where they're watching over us, as it were. I repeat, they're not actually seeing what we're doing right now. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Well, I think you get the message there. It's no longer about them. It's about us. It's no longer about those who've gone before us, even in the Revival Fellowship or anywhere else for that matter. It's about us here today. What are we doing with so great salvation? What is our commitment to the things of the Lord? And if that's not enough to look back on those people, in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who initiated it. He's the one who will complete it for us, of course. Of course, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, not the joy of the cross, despising the shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Enjoy the joy that he had is today, seeing his people gathered together here or Ballarat or Bendigo or Adelaide or wherever. That's his joy. People being filled with the Holy Ghost and fire, people who are not neglecting what he achieved on the cross of Calvary. What a slap in the face it is for Jesus Christ, for those who are spirit-filled to treat it so casually, to be so lukewarm, to be so half-baked. What a slap in the face for what he achieved on the cross of Calvary. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He made provision for our forgiveness. And we, what, treat it as something trivial or not significant? We're too embroiled in everything else? Is that how it works? For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. This is a, the thrust that Paul is giving us here in the book of Hebrews, right from the very beginning in, in Hebrews chapter 2 there. Don't neglect, well, then don't grow weary also, of course. And, uh, and then it goes on, and I won't read into that now, but it goes on in the next few verses about correction and direction and discipline and chastening, which are all part of it, which a lot of people don't like, of course. In verse 11, now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So, for the time being, it's not a pleasant thing, of course, is it? It's not pleasant that we should uh, have to go through this correction. Who likes to be told they're wrong? Who likes to be told we have to change this or don't do this or do this or whatever? No one really likes that. Uh, but as far as the Lord is concerned, it's a good thing, provided it's in the Lord and we respond uh, with a, a spiritual attitude because um, it ultimately is going to yield exactly what the Lord wants from us. Verse 12, well, knowing this is a good thing for us, you we can, we can handle the truth. Wherefore, lift up your hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now, the Amplified Bible says, So then brace up and reinvigorate and set right your slackened and weakened and drooping hands and strengthen your feeble and palsied and tottering knees. Pretty strong description. Uh, doesn't apply here, of course. We're all strong, aren't we, in the Lord? No, it always applies to every single person here, and it applies all the time how strong we're supposed to be in the Lord. Verse 15, looking diligently, this was quoted earlier, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness bringing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The Amplified says, exercise foresight and be on the watch to look after one another to see that no one falls back or fails to secure God's grace, his unmerited favour and his spiritual blessing, in order that no root of resentment or bitterness or hatred shoots forth and causes trouble and bitter torment and the many become contaminated and defiled by it. So we are, we're on the lookout for ourselves. Of course we examine ourselves Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but at the same time we're also mindful of being a good testimony, encouraging others to make sure that, well, bitterness is, is not a good thing, never is. It just eats away and ultimately, as the Bible says, will defile you. And so again he talks about a few more things along those lines, but I want you to go down out of verse 22 because he makes a comparison between what people had in the Old Testament 
and the things they went through and in, say, Hebrews 11 for illustration, but other places too. And then he compares that to what we've got in the Lord now. Verse 22, but we are come under Mount Zion, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written or enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much, how much more shall they not escape, or not we escape, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? Let me quote that from the Amplified. So see to it that you do not reject him or refuse to listen to or to take heed of him who is speaking to you now. For if they, the Israelites, did not escape, when they refused to listen and heed him, who warned and divinely instructed them here on earth, revealing with heavenly warnings his will, how much less shall we escape if we reject and turn our backs on him who, who cautiously admonishes us and warns us from heaven, from heaven? I mean, if they, if they listened, didn't listen to a man back then, although that man was giving them God's warning, if they suffered the consequences of disobedience back then, how much more will people today suffer the consequence of disobedience when the warnings from God himself through his word and through his ambassadors and his representatives? Down in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth and now he hath promised saying, yet once more I will shake not the earth only but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken or are shakeable, those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So we need to make sure that we are established on the rock, the sure, firm, absolute foundation, because this world's going to rock and roll or rock and reel when the Lord returns. No doubt about that. And the whole thing's going to be turned upside down. Every aspect of our society is going to be changed because Jesus Christ is going to take control. It's going to be a total upheaval, the Bible says. makes it very clear. And those things that remain, rock solid, Christ, his church, and his people. Verse 28, wherefore receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, that's our kingdom, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Let us hold fast to the truths that we have and make sure. It says in the Amplified, let us therefore receiving a kingdom that is firm and stable and cannot be shaken, offer to God pleasing service, acceptable worship and humility and pious care and godly fear and awe. Best, best we make our vision very clear. Best we understand and appreciate exactly who we are. Let's go to Luke 21. We'll just finish over here somewhere. Luke 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Chapter 21, uh, there's lots of things about the signs of the times and so on here. We're not going to look at those at that particular moment. But if you go down to the end of verse 25, it simply says there, distress of nations with perplexity. Well, maybe that's just a 
few words, but it's meant to sum up exactly the state of this world. It's, it's a distressful world. They're in distress. It distresses others. It distresses the Lord. And uh, there's all sorts of problems in every sphere that we look at uh, with perplexity. At wit's end, another translation says, uh, no way out. There's no way they can solve. There's no escape. The world cannot escape this. God's judgment is coming and there's no way out. The Lord has to deal with it. Only the individual who gets themselves involved in the things of the Lord is going to find a way of escape. It says in verse 26, men's hearts failing them, fainting with apprehension and fear for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of Uranus shall be shaken. The powers of Uranus. They're talking about countries like Iran having nuclear bombs. They won't be controllable. Not only them, but many other nations as well. And we've got stockpiles all over the place. They're already in the hands of a number of rogue nations. So the powers of Uranus have already been shaken. We saw that in 1945 and such a long time ago. And we wouldn't do that again, would we? We are building up to it. There is, it may not be the, the ultimate thing because there's lots of other things that can also happen, but it's always that potential there any moment from now because they're, they're building up to it. Then shall you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when you see these things begin to come to pass, and, we, and we've seen very much more than just beginning to come to pass, then look up and lift your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So we lift our heads up. We're mindful. We're appreciative. We're involved. We're committed. We're dedicated. We love the Lord. We love our brethren. We love uh, the church. We love uh, being uh, representatives of the things of God. Down to verse 34 for the sake of time. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. <laughs> Another translation says raging. There's even some shows called Rage, rage and uh, there are other shows that are uh, uh, similar to that. Uh, surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. It doesn't necessarily mean being, uh, I mean, it includes obviously alcohol and all that sort of stuff, but you can get caught up and, uh, in all sorts of things. There's a lot of things that can take our attention away and make us uh, embroiled in them in such a way that we're, well, we're like a drunk person. And the cares of this life, so that they come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. It says in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, when people are saying all is well and secure, well, they're not really quite saying that now, but maybe in their own life they're thinking, oh, well, it's not too bad. Inflation's coming down a bit now. I'm getting a raise from the boss. I'm, I'm doing this or whatever. And there is peace and safety, maybe in their own life or maybe more generally. Then in a moment, unforeseen destruction, ruin and death will come upon them as suddenly as labour pains come upon a woman with child. And they shall by no means escape, for there will be... No escape. That's, by, that's God's words. There will be no escape. So in verse 36, it says, Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, the, the Lord has given us the equipment. He's given us the wherewithal now. He put us in a wonderful position. He's given us a great salvation. There are great opportunities for us to serve him and to serve one another and to look to the Lord and to be inspired and enthralled, uh, enthralled by the things of the Lord. It's all there for us. 
Just in concluding, in the Amplified Bible, verse 36, keep awake then, watch at all times, be discreet, attentive and ready, not neglectful, praying that you may have the full strength and ability to be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand in the presence of the Son of Man. All the people said. 